Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. And welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we're joined by the poet Cleo Wade, and then we have the news as usual with me, Brittany, Clinton, Sam. The message for this week is sort of simple. It's that nothing can replace preparation. Is that for all the big projects that you've ever seen any of your favorite people do, your favorite activists, your favorite celebrities, your favorite artists, your favorite writers, your favorite thinkers, you actually didn't see the prep work that went into it, that sometimes it looks easy in execution, but the prep was actually probably a grind. So don't forget that like, you gotta do the prep work. I see a lot of people who show up to meetings and they think it's like really cool that they actually haven't really read anything about the issue because they can just like talk off the cuff or people participate in policy setting or agenda setting and think that it's a really cool trait that they can sort of just perform and it's it's like the best performances take a whole lot of rehearsal Beyonce didn't just like get up on stage and have a flawless performance the first time there's a lot of practice and a lot of uh, legwork to get there so don't forget there's no success without preparation let's go Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Ms. Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter and Instagram. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third on all social media. Hi, hi, hi. Sam, are you getting sick? You sound like you're getting sick. Uh, sort of. I've, you better not be. Yeah, I mean, like, I've had been getting over a cold for the past, like, week because traveling abroad, I don't know, something, whenever I come back from traveling abroad, it's like, I'm, like, adjusting and feel like... It's a mess. So I'm getting there. You missed sleep and you've been breathing in recycled air and other people's germs. Traveling will get you sick every time. Yes. All of that. And wait, and this is DeRay at D-R-A-Y on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, also, this is DeRay. (laughs) Right. Hey, I'm here too, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Is anybody anybody planning on uh, kneeling in any NFL games anytime soon? Because, you know, there's a new policy about that if you're a player. And if you do that, Trump thinks maybe you should just leave the country. It's wild. It just keeps escalating, doesn't it? It's like first he, you know, first it was like a thing. People were talking about it when Kaepernick was kneeling. And then Trump made it like a, a big thing by, you know, calling, you know, a son of a bee or something like that and, and sort of escalating it further and telling the NFL that they should punish the players. And then, of course, the NFL team owners got together and decided to cave to the pressure and, implement a policy that uh, is a racist policy, right? It's a policy adopted by white people for white people to punish black people for challenging white supremacy. And there's no, there's no doubt about that. It's so obvious what they're doing. And yet, you know, here it is, you know, again and again and again, we see this happening, not only in the NFL, but that's how the system has sort of treated us for all too long. And they also just played themselves. Like the NFL, the 
part of the pretense of the NFL changing this policy was to sort of like, okay, let's get this out of the way. Let's appease Trump and let's appease Trump's base. Let's uh, make it so that our conservative folks come back and Trump won't talk about us. He'll say, this is good. And then we'll keep it moving. And then, you know, Trump being Trump, he, he took it. To, like as Sam said to another level and he talked about like I don't think people should be staying in locker rooms either you have to stand proudly or you need to leave the country right and so he was never ever gonna actually back off and because this is all I think Jamel Hill um, put it this way but like it's the sort of like racial pornography that he uses to to stay relevant and he uses that to uh, to continue to stoke racial white supremacist animosity that is going to keep a large portion of people who support him, um, ex- you know, invested in the the things that he's saying and subsequently um, invested in the policy that the the NFL has, you know, created and against the players who um, were just trying to, you know, say what they need to say. What I found interesting is that it came out later that all the owners actually didn't vote on the policy, that the NFL took a temperature check of who they thought was going to vote for the policy. And because they thought it was like a raise your hands kind of thing. No, they said that it wasn't even a raise your hand. It was a like, we think these people will support it. So they came out and, una- and said that it was unanimous. And then all of a sudden you saw these people being like, oh, no, they didn't even vote. No, they didn't even vote. So and I only know this because I went on this rampage being like the 49ers um, owner isn't courageous for saying he abstained like that because the 49ers owner saying he abstained from that. He did not. He did not vote for it. And I was like, that's actually not courage. Right. Courage would have been voting against it. And the Jets owner came out and said he paid the fine. And it's like, well, why didn't you just vote against it? Right. Like if you don't believe in it. And then it came out a couple of days later that like there was not actually a technical vote like there no vote occurred that they polled seemingly a majority of the owners and they took that polling as like a vote is that like standard practice or is that it is not are? standard practice actually it is atypical for a policy that is this meaningful or like this impactful the thing that i find really interesting about the letter of the policy is that it's not the individual players who will be fined right because i could see someone saying you know what as soon as the season starts here's all my fine money up front like that's what i do i'd be like here you go because i'm gonna be kneeling what they said was they're going to find the entire team and so what you do is you stoke everyone's frustration or anxiety or desire to quote unquote remain unified and we talk about that all the time in the context of movements and conversations where people say silence your particular issue in order to be quote unified with everyone else unity doesn't mean people erasing their identity and the issues that are relevant to their people what it actually means is everybody caring about those things instead of us having to silence them for the good of the, of the greater group. And so I found it really intentional that that was the way that they crafted it. And I think Clint, your point is really powerful um, because every single time Trump stokes racial anxiety, we have to recognize that as a campaign tactic 100%. that when he is not relevant enough in the news or he's not, ha- doesn't have the time to make a campaign stop, or he has a, a public failure. Like he did this last week with the canceling of the North Korea meeting that in order to get back, Back in the spotlight and remind his voters that he wants them to stick with him, he brings up MS-13 or he calls an African country uh, an asshole, right? Or he talks about immigrants or he talks about black football players. Like this is a, a, a really naked dog whistle to his base to stay with him and to stick with him because uh, he wants them to know that um, his, his ideas about these things are still the same um, and to show up again in 2018 and 2020. 
It's a clear example that racism is his political strategy, right? It is not something that he got elected in spite of or something that was like a, an undercurrent or a side current to what was going on. Like this is his primary political strategy. It's the foundation. Yeah. I mean, the, the other stuff mm-hmm. happens, you know, his supporters don't even hear a lot of that stuff. What they hear is what's happening in the NFL, is what Trump has said about it, are the most outrageous things that Trump has said that get that gets broadcast all across the country. And so I think... You know, racism uh, more often than not comprises what the content of what those things are. Colin told everybody. Colin told everybody that the NFL didn't care when they put together that little social justice committee and they put together that little fund. People are like, "Oh, look at the NFL!" And Colin was like, "Y'all don't be fooled." And then the policy comes out, and people are like, "I can't believe they did that." You're like, "Should have just listened to Colin the first time." Mm-hmm. Black lives have to be more important than football. Like I just know and trust and believe that everyone should be able to understand that. (sighs) Please prove me right, people. But from racism to sexism, recently there was a big splash in the faith community surrounding issues in the Southern Baptist Church. So the Southern Baptist uh, Convention is a denomination, a Protestant denomination that is largely largely white, largely Southern, uh, and that has a number of theological seminaries across the country. Um, a few weeks ago, an unprecedented open letter signed by thousands of Southern Baptist women um, was released in response to several statements, both public and private, that Paige Patterson had made. Paige Patterson is 75 years old, and he was the president of the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and a very prominent leader in the Southern Baptist Convention. What did he do and what did he say? Well, a couple of things. Um, he was taped making comments between 2000 and 2014 about women, including remarks about a teenage girl's figure, saying that women of the cloth, female seminarians should work harder to look attractive, and also saying that women who are abused should almost always stay with their husbands, that basically they just need to pray it away. And last week we talked about the danger of praying, trying to pray away way um, exclusively uh, mental health issues, most certainly we should be clear that any kind of intimate partner violence, domestic violence requires far more than the laying on of hands or somebody falling to their knees in prayer. And so thousands of women, uh, like I said, in a really unprecedented move, called out this really problematic behavior. A lot of people were calling it the very first of a Me Too reckoning in the faith community, because let's be very clear, across multiple faith communities, and I can certainly speak for Christians, is that is the the faith community I'm a part of. Misogyny has been rampant. Abuse of power has been rampant. um, And women have been abused in many, many different ways from the pulpit to the congregation and everywhere in between. But what was the answer that the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary had? Their answer was simply to move Paige Patterson from being active president to being president emeritus. So what that means is he will still collect a salary and he will still live on campus as what they're calling a theologian in residence. In other words, he can still do all the harm he's been doing just from a different place. Uh, now, I knew growing up that Southern Baptists were known to be not racially inclusive 
pervasive, uh, but most certainly we're also seeing sexism, not just amongst the Southern Baptist community, um, but across communities of faith. Uh, and the last thing I'll say is, you know, I remember a few years ago when a lot of my friends thought that I was being too dramatic when there was a situation in a church that I was very familiar with, um, where the pastor had an extramarital affair and got a very young woman in the church pregnant. And the church essentially ran out the young woman, but kept the pastor. Um, and they were like, you're making too much of this because I said, I will never, ever, ever go back to that church or sit while that pastor is preaching. But we have to recognize that the, the, the small moments of misogyny and sexism are what lead to the bigger, more dangerous, riskier moments. That it's casual misogyny, as, as Chelsea Clinton recently said, that's actually the problem uh, because it is a, a gateway and it makes way for so many other abuses of power. And that's really what I had a problem with then. And that's what I have a problem with now, because these abuses of power are putting women in danger, children in danger, families in danger, left and right. And making somebody president emeritus is simply not a good enough solution. Yeah, I think one of the most unsettling and, and really egregious things I can imagine is someone who is using their position of moral or spiritual authority in order to to manipulate or demean or harass or assault any any group of people or any any single person. Right. I think there's something that is particularly horrific about someone who know who who is cognizant of the way that their position operates in a sort of larger ecosystem of people's lives and then knowingly uses that position to enact harm, whether verbal or physical or emotional on people's lives. And this pastor is clearly someone who's done that. And I think, you know, in the faith community, I grew up in, in the Catholic church and there has been a, a long overdue reckoning and in many ways actually not enough of a reckoning um, <clears throat> with the the child abuse scandal that is plagued the, the Catholic church for decades. Um, and, and there are many people who have been, who directly participated in or were uh, knowingly complicit in the harm and acted on like many, many, many children for many, many years um, who have not uh, been held accountable for those actions. And I think it's, you know, I'm always reminded in the context of faith that, that these, that people are not disconnected from the larger systems of of, of patriarchy and the larger systems of sexism and the larger systems of racism in the world. Um, and I think sometimes we can sort of delude ourselves into thinking that these are, are spaces in which the, the authority figures in them are not subject to the same uh, biases or prejudices or um, sort of problematic attitudes that other people would be. But, but we have to, as we do in every phase of our lives, um, really interrogate um, the, the, the people who are leading uh, our faith institutions, the faith institutions that we even decide to attend. I think Brittany made a great point about like, if you are uh, attending a church and that pastor or that, uh, or someone who is in a position of authority there is, is saying something or doing something that is uh, harmful to a group of people or runs counter to the things you believe in. Um, you have a sort of moral obligation to say like, why am I, am I going to continue to attend and, and support this institution with my presence. And, and I think, you know, these are choices that I've had to make over the course of my life. And, and I think it's something that we all should, should keep in mind. Yeah. To that point, Clint, about interrogating the history of the institution, you know, the Southern Baptist denomination was formed in 1845. And I recently learned that, you know, it was actually formed in defense of slavery, uh, where uh, Southern Baptists split from Northern Baptists because they believed that slaveholders should uh, be able to be missionaries 
and became vocal advocates for slavery as a biblical institution. Um, and, you know, indeed, mm. throughout, you know, Jim, the Jim Crow era, uh, we saw Southern Baptist deacons and pastors uh, moving sort of in and out of Ku Klux Klan membership uh, and sort of being on that side of uh, what was going on. And so what was interesting is that they recently had a convention, uh, this was last year, where they issued a uh, a rebuke, uh, where they actually condemned racism, and in particular the sort of alt-right uh, Nazi movement. Uh, and so so that's sort of, we've seen some movement on the issue of race. Uh, I'm interested to see what they do now on the issue of sexism and, and uh, patriarchy, uh, given what we've what we've just heard. You know, it was this idea that the comments he made were in the past and some people defending him are like, well, these are old comments and this isn't representative. And you just think about all the things that that ideology, that, that the foundation for those ideas that allowed those comments to to be in sermons, to be in talks like that, that wasn't like a minor thing that that actually has a lot of impact. And for so long, we dismiss sexism and homophobia and misogyny because we're like, oh, you know what? That was like, that's old news. Like that happened a while ago without actually taking into account the damage uh, that it had back then and continues to have today. This also is like a good reminder of the difference between justice and accountability, that justice is making sure that people don't have to experience the trauma in the first place. Accountability is what happens when there has been trauma, and we're not seeing any sort of sense of either in this case. It, they've not announced anything to deal with sexual harassment sort of moving forward, especially for leaders, in a way that makes sense. And then the accountability piece is that it's not actually accountability if he is just getting a new job title and a salary and, like, a new house. Like, that isn't—that doesn't seem to be any sort of repercussion at all. It's just, like, a PR move to say that they did something. It's also a reminder of the importance of the gift that like we all have gifts and our gifts actually make us more responsible, not less. So some people think that like because you're such a gifted artist or a gifted speaker that like we should just give you a pass when you make grave mistakes or do things that are just obviously wrong. And the reality is that like you should be more responsible the greater the gift. And with this uh, pastor, it's like you had a gift so great. And you abused it, like you abused it in the message, in the word, and you justified heinous things. And like, you are responsible for that. And reading about this decision, people are like, you know, but he was so important and he did this and he did that. And it's like, and he did this, which was really a problem. And that means that he shouldn't be in this role. The last thing I'll say is that there was actually, and this is probably one of the wildest parts of this story to me, is that there was a student who was actually disciplined in the past for speaking out against sexual harassment in the church and in a set of issues, they lost a scholarship and a job because the church said talking about these issues does not exhibit conduct becoming of a follower of Jesus. Like that is the end. I quote, that's like literally what they said in wow. defending the decision to silence somebody speaking up on issues. So uh, like Brittany, you alluded to the Christ I know is one of justice and not one that silences people. So my piece of news is a new study uh, that came from Alma Cohen and Crystal Yang of Harvard Law School. They looked at 500,000 sentences, prison sentences, uh, handed down by nearly 1,400 federal judges from 1999 to 2015. And what they found was that Republican-appointed federal judges give 
black people sentences that are on average six to seven months longer than white people for the same crimes. And that Democratic appointed judges give black people sentences that are three to four months longer than white defendants with similar histories and uh, who commit similar crimes. And so what's interesting about this is that, number one, it, it shows so clearly that there's deep systemic injustice in the criminal justice system, in particular in, in the sentencing disparities, where you see a situation where you have a black and white defendant both have similar criminal histories, convicted of similar crimes, and yet... The black defendant in both cases gets sentenced to more prison time. But you also see why there is a difference between Democrats and Republicans in that the Republican-appointed judges are sentencing black defendants to three months longer than their Democratic uh, counterparts. So it's interesting on a whole uh, number of levels. Number one, why it matters when you have a Republican versus a Democratic president who's in charge of making these appointments uh, number two, it matters in the sense of uh, understanding where these sentencing disparities come from and the role that partisanship plays. Uh, and number three, it matters because uh, when you actually look at how policy impacts this issue, uh, federal sentencing guidelines were actually relaxed a little bit, giving judges discretion, uh, more discretion in how they uh, sentence people. And what they, the researchers found was that given that extra discretion, the Democratic judges used that discretion uh, to actually further uh, reduce that disparity. So having a lesser sentence than they had previously been giving to black defendants so that it would more closely approximate those of white defendants. Uh, but Republican judges continued to give black defendants much longer sentences before and after that rule change. So this has implications for, you know, rolling back mandatory minimums, which would give judges more discretion uh, and other reforms that we can think of uh, in the effort to address these racial disparities in the criminal justice system. This report was really striking. And and one of the things that I found most striking about it was um, something towards the end where they talked about how a typical president appoints about 160 district court judges uh, per, in their four-year term, which means that a president has the power to shift the partisan composition of the 677 judge district court system by anywhere between 15 and 20 percentage points, which is huge. I mean, right. So you think about 160 judges appointed in a four-year term. And, and, you know, we've talked about um, previously how Trump, uh, after his first year, was on track to appoint far more judges than so, so many of his predecessors. Um, and that's been slowed down a bit, but something that should still concern us. But like 15 to 20 percentage points is a huge number uh, of people who would be thus disproportionately um, sentencing their black defendants to, to longer sentences. And, and the second thing is that some people might hear that and be like, oh, three months, three months isn't that long of a time. Three, you know, like it's it, that's concerning. But like, you know, the statistical difference isn't huge. One, I think that reflects the fact that someone who would think that has never actually spent time in a prison and doesn't actually understand what a violent place a prison is like, inherent, again, not so sort of interpersonal violence, but like the the existence of a prison is in, in and of itself uh, a violent institution. Um, and then also people forget how like three months can make a huge difference in somebody's life in terms of uh, whether or not they're able to keep their house, whether or not they're able to maintain custody of their kids, whether or not they are, uh, lose their job, whether or not that, you know, so there are a myriad of things in which three months makes a humongous difference um, in terms of someone's ability to then reintegrate themselves successfully uh, into society. You know, as an aside, 
side, I found this study to be a helpful allegory to this kind of free thinkers notion that people have been talking about in the context of Kanye and others who say, you know, black Republicans are free thinkers and the rest of y'all are just uneducated, which besides being deeply disrespectful to the majority of black people who tend to either vote with Democrats and or with more progressive in support of more progressive policies and politicians. Um, you know, it, it, this I, I've also heard the idea, right, that both parties are essentially the same. And it is true. Racism is not a partisan issue. It is an American issue because judges from both parties are disproportionately sentencing black people. But there is a difference in degrees. <laughs> and the Democrats and the Republicans are just not the same. Now, we can agree that two things can be true. That one, neither one of those parties has done everything that black people need. Um, and yet two, at the same time, that one is way worse than the other. And pushing the Democratic Party or not being in approval of everything that the Democratic Party does or trying to make sure that the party is actually representative of the people who support it, who keep it afloat, um, meaning the voices of people of color, of women, of LGBTQ folks, of millennials of marginalized communities, making sure that that is happening because we're not fully satisfied with what Democrats are doing doesn't mean that we should be going and becoming Republicans. And I just, I, you know, I found this study fascinating for a lot of reasons, including the ones that Sam, that you have mentioned and Clint, that you've mentioned um, from a criminal justice standpoint. But I just want to point this out because so many folks are saying, well, both parties are basically the same and one party is just as bad as the other. And we can be clear that that people of color in this country, that marginalized people in in this country are still not getting everything that they deserve and still recognize the degrees to which they are demonstrably different. And this is just another example. I'll just say a few things. One of the first things that this reminds me of is that we have a lot of data on how many people have been incarcerated and we have moderately good data on some of the probation and parole figures. We have so little data about so much of the rest of the criminal justice system. So, you know, it, it, this report is, is sort of important because it is one of the first data sets that actually looks at decisions like this. You know, we have almost no real data sets around bail across the country. It's one of the interesting things about bail is that when you talk to people who spent their life studying this, is that like there just aren't great data sets that show like how judges set bail differently or like any of the questions that you might actually have around bail. Like they're just not, not a lot of great data sets about them, but that's true of a host of issues in the criminal justice space. So I'm hopeful that with this newfound recognition about the importance of criminal justice in the past four years, that it leads to more studies and analyses like this being funded so that like we actually have the data. The other thing the study does that I thought was really interesting is that it highlights that experience matters that judges who are more experienced and lesser experienced judges, uh, tend to to make less disparate decisions. What's interesting about that is that that sort of suggests that like just being appointed to the bench is not erasing the bias. That like when you come fresh, you know, off your appointment, you're bringing all that racism and sexism and all that stuff with you. And that is like Clint said, a matter of like who we're appointing. And this is why some of the Trump nominees, when you think about the experience stuff is like some of these people have barely ever been in a court, let alone a judge before, that he's appointing to lifetime positions. So shout out to the work of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund 
and some of the other civil rights groups that have been doing incredible work tracking the judicial nominees from the administration because they get that, like, you know, they might not be dangerous today, but you appoint a 30 year old to a lifetime appointment who has these ideas. And that is just a real nightmare. I'm interested in the study that will come out in 20 years showing the effects of like Democrats, Republicans and then the people appointed by Trump. So thinking about criminal justice, uh, my news is kind of three different things, all thinking about criminal justice in the context of uh, nationally, but also uh, in my home state of Louisiana, which, as we know, is the the prison capital of the entire world. Um, so, so I'll start with some good news. One is that uh, the Vera Institute, our homies at Vera, always coming out with great reports, uh, found out that the prison population dropped below 1.5 million people uh, for the first time since 2004. And so that's the prison population that is not prison and jails, to be clear, because I think people would be like, man, it went from 2.2 million to 1.5. That's not the case. Um, And then on another episode, we can interrogate the idea of 2.2 million being for prison and jail, but that's for another time. But uh, prison population dropped below 1.5 million for the first time since 2004, which is great. But it's also important to disaggregate the data um, and understand which states have shrinking prison populations and which states have growing populations. So the overall decline in the prison population rate has been driven largely by a decrease in the number of people in federal prisons, as well as steep declines in states like Illinois, Louisiana, and Maryland. Uh, But those declines are definitely not universal, and mass incarceration is still on the rise in the states like Tennessee and Kentucky where the over the course of the last year, the percent increases were the highest um, in the country. And so although Louisiana has the highest incarceration rate in the world, last November, its prison population uh, decreased by 5.4 percentage points in a single month uh, because it, it released 1,900 folks to get home to, for the holidays to their families. Um, and so these, this is good news. Another piece of good news is that there's a bill that was kind of quietly but uh, thankfully passed in the Louisiana state legislature uh, makes it so that thousands of formerly uh, incarcerated folks who are on probation and parole um, can register to vote again. The only the thing is that they have to wait five years after they've been released. Um, and you cannot have been convicted of a, a felony involving election fraud. But, uh, but this is good news. Up to 3,500 people can regain to r- the right to vote under this legislation. And, and this is a battle that folks are fighting across the country. And as we know, folks like Sam have been doing a lot of work with the, the organizers on the ground in Florida. Um, and so we'll be keeping our eye on that. And then the other part that's not as great, um, but also comes from Vera is, and we've talked a lot about this on the podcast, but the impact of bail. And, and the report is very extensive and, and really important. And and I urge you to dig into it. But I'll just say this one part that really stuck out to me was that people arrested in New Orleans pay $6.4 million annually into the money bail system. And more than 1 million of that goes to the criminal district court. Uh, About 200,000 of that goes to three agencies, which is the sheriff, the district attorney and the public defender's office. And four point seven million dollars goes to the commercial bail bond industry. So more than two thirds of the money that New Orleanians are paying into the bail system goes to for profit commercial bail bond companies. Um, and and there you know there's been a lot of conversation about the the horror around the bail bond industry and how they are really just uh, vultures um, uh, against the poor um, and, and New Orleans is is no different. And the other thing uh, in Louisiana is that they passed the uh, unanimous jury 
amendment, which is going to now go to the ballot. So uh, non-unanimous juries in Louisiana, as you know, previous episodes have uh, taken a deeper dive into, uh, that can be abolished in Louisiana if voters turn out and uh, you know vote for uh, this change uh, to happen this November. So if you're in Louisiana, show up to the polls, uh, vote for the amendment to require unanimous juries, and uh, that would substantially impact the criminal justice system, uh, building on the progress that's been made in terms of restoring voting rights and the other things that, that you talked about. Clint. You know, all three of those things are just a reminder about how intricate a web this system of criminal justice is. You know, we have such short attention spans, uh, not just as voters, but certainly as people who pay attention to policy and, and the people who write policy, I would say, have even shorter attention spans. And so people can get stuck on one idea, one solution, right? For a while, it was ban the box, and then it was about mandatory minimums. And then it's a, and right now, the big conversation is about cash bail. And all of those things um, are right in some ways, although we've talked about the the problem in moving from theory to practice um, on banning the box in a previous episode. But um, at their root, these things are intended to be um, course correctors, right, to fix a system that is deeply flawed. I won't say broken because it was designed to be this way. And so it's in many ways working exactly as it was designed. And yet we have to recognize that for anything, for education, for housing, for homelessness, uh, and yes, for criminal criminal justice, there is no single solution that is actually going to get us through. We have to be diligent enough and thoughtful enough to do the reading and listen to the experts and understand just how interwoven all of these things are, how cash bail relates to sentencing, which relates to the franchise that you do or don't have after you um, are re-entering society. Uh, and, and so this is all three of these things are just a reminder that we have to be responsible to see this thing through to the end. That, yes, we need to celebrate whatever victories we get when we have them, when we get something to the ballot, then we need to move on to the next thing and we need to actually make sure that that those things get passed um, and we need to move from one issue to the other to unravel this thing that is so tightly woven uh, and, and woven that way on purpose to keep people ensnarled in such a dangerous system. So while we're talking about Louisiana, just some things that I wanted to keep us mindful of, you know, last uh, last week's episode, the message was not only get the win, but protect the win. That we fight so much to get the win that sometimes we forget to protect it or we just don't even know when it's been rolled back. And there are three things that have happened in Louisiana recently that I want to talk about. One uh, is Angola, which is the single largest prison complex in the country. It's 18,000 acres and 28 square miles. It used to be four plantations. It is now one. They actually just closed Camp J, which was the solitary confinement uh, camp. And the way Angola set up, I was I was at Camp J. The way uh, Angola set up is that it's like these mini camps that are essentially like small little towns because the, it's so much land that you have to drive from one camp to the other. And Camp J was like the camp that was like the, the most restrictive. It was like the punishment camp. And even things like the um, the yard, there wasn't really a yard, but the yard was like individual cells, like a bas imagine a basketball court broken up into individual like little cells. It was a wild sort of experience to, to think that like human beings had to, that is how they like had recreation or that is how they went through their day. But that just closed. So that is good news. What happened though, around protecting the win 
is that two pieces of uh, the criminal justice package that got approved not too long ago in Louisiana are actually being pulled back. So there is there was a bill that got passed um, not too long ago that would have capped the fines and fees and penalties paid by people coming out of jail. And it got delayed for another year because the people had to administer it. They didn't like it. So like the clerks, the judges, those sort of people didn't like the law when it passed the first time. So they essentially told the legislature that they couldn't do it and that not having the fines and fees and penalties would actually hamstring their court system. So the legislature agreed to extend it one more year for implementation. And that's sort of wild. The whole point was that like, the criminal justice system shouldn't be running on the backs of people. So if they need more money, then they got to find the money, but it shouldn't be on the backs of people who can't afford it. And the second is that they passed a law, again, not too long ago, that would uh, stop child support from collecting or being accrued and collected while people are in jail. Because, like, you know, if you're in jail, you're probably not earning an income that can be, you know, taken for child support. That also was delayed another year at the request of the Department of Children and Family Services because they just said that they couldn't process that. And like, I think about those because the system has a way of pushing back against even the best intentions. And like, in this case, they like actually passed those two laws. Like, it wasn't even like you need to fight to pass it. It's like you actually passed it, but the bureaucracy that wasn't in favor of it actually delayed it. And like, they could try and just kill it by keeping these delays going on. And I just wanted to bring that up because I'm mindful of sometimes like we lose the win later after we won it the first time. So my news is about libraries. I didn't know that libraries are visited by like almost 1.5 billion people a year. I, the last time I went to a public library was like for, a, I like talked to some middle schoolers in a library I think I've only been to events in libraries recently. I haven't actually like checked out a book in a library in a long time, but I need to. But I'm in the minority, it seems, that 1.5 billion visits is actually a whole lot of people visiting. And this article talks about how drug overdoses are frequent in libraries and how librarians have started to think about their role as having an impact in the drug crisis. And I just had never even thought about that. So I wanted to bring it here. And the article talks about 12% of the state's public libraries experienced a drug overdose on site in the past year, which was like a fascinating idea that like that there's a measurable percentage of libraries that have had an overdose happen like on site. And that the overdose death rate in Pennsylvania, where the, the study is from, uh, it more than doubled in between 2000 in 2016, and Pennsylvania right now holds a distinction of being uh, the number one in drug-related mortality, which I like hadn't even, like, I didn't know Pennsylvania was, uh, that I just didn't know. But it makes me think of, like, how our inability to, to have real treatment for people, like, leads to everybody having to have the responsibility of being a provider. So what you find now across the country is librarians are uh, carrying naloxone, the, the overdose uh, drug to like stop an overdose, uh, stop somebody from dying immediately and they can stay alive long enough to get to the hospital, that that's actually being stocked in cities across the country in their libraries. And the librarians are actually being trained now to deal with the trauma of people either using in libraries or overdosing in libraries. And I brought that here just because I, as a part of the the conversation that like I just didn't even know. And I was like, let's see what the team has to say about it. You know, I always find it fascinating how many people who 
enter into any kind of career of educationally related public service have to learn skills that are that at least seem on the surface unrelated to their core function. Uh, you know, we often talk, uh, Clint DeRay and I, about being former educators and the many ways that we had to show up for our students, their families, our community um, that just aren't listed in the job description. And obviously dealing with uh, drug use, drug overdoses, potential death from drug overdoses is not in the job description when you decide to study the library sciences, when you decide to apply for a job as a librarian um, at your local library. And yet this is, to DeRay's point, often something that is put on the backs of people who choose to be public servants um, and, and educate and provide opportunities for the public. But just imagine if Congress and our state houses and mayors and governors and city councilors acted with the amount of love and care and ingenuity that these librarians are to say, you know, just because it wasn't in our job description doesn't mean that we're not going to take care of it. You know, I just think we'd be living in a very, very different circumstance. And I believe that in part, the difference is proximity. And one of my heroes, Brian Stevenson, who's become a good friend, talks about proximity all the time because he reminds us that you can't do any kind of justice work or work for good, um, you can't do any of it well or effectively if you are not proximate to the problem and the people who are suffering the most. So you cannot solve homelessness if you are not willing to look people who are housing insecure in the eye, talk to them, treat them like they're human beings. And similarly, if you are a librarian and you are seeing folks come into your space who are dealing with these issues and you are greeting them and you are seeing them every morning, you are forced to see and recognize their humanity. And I just believe that if the people who made decisions were more proximate to the people that they affect, the decisions that they make and the policy that they write would be very different. It would be much more rooted in love. It would be much more rooted in compassion. It would be much more rooted in actually helping people solve their problems and empowering people versus punishing people for the substance abuse issues that they may have. And it's a structural problem, right, where you have elected officials whose job it is to attend to their constituents' needs and concerns like this, and they're not proximate to the situation. They're not doing town halls. They're not meeting with constituents. They're certainly not meeting with constituents directly impacted by uh, the opioid epidemic. And yet, you know, it is their responsibility to do this, and yet they are so separated from the actual issue at hand and really ignoring it in, in most areas. And at the same time, you have folks who, as you said, Brittany, this is not their job, their sort of uh, job description, uh, but who are structurally positioned proximate to people who are directly impacted by this and so many other issues who have to take this on because, you know, number one, it's the right thing to do. Number two, uh, you know, you're in a situation where, you know, you actually recognize the problems that you're seeing, that you're that you're witnessing, that you're experiencing in your direct environment, and and taking a leadership role and trying to to be the solution that needs to happen there. And so, I, you know, I'm wondering. This is why it's so important that legislators, you know, meet with constituents, actually ho hold those town halls, uh, and actually are proximate 
to the problems, particularly of marginalized communities, uh, because as we're seeing now, especially in Congress and state capitals across the country, there is this sort of aloofness and disconnectedness where they're passing all kinds of arcane and, and random things uh, that nobody's calling for, that in many cases make the problem worse, uh, and really have no idea, have never met with any constituents, uh, have never really uh, had to be confronted with uh, the realities of what people are experiencing. Yeah, I think that the, the points all three of you have made um, are just really on the nose. And, and I'll just end by um, by kind of just pivoting to sort of appreciation mode. Um, you know, as someone who is uh, slowly but surely, uh, mostly slowly writing a dissertation, I am uh, I'm in libraries all the time um, and, and research libraries and public libraries and university libraries. And, and I, I just want to shout out librarians. Um, Beyond, obviously, as has been alluded to, going above and beyond their duties in so many different capacities um, to address the needs of their community and, and the the community around them. Librarians, I think, are just such an underappreciated group of people generally, and, and I am deeply grateful for librarians who in my life right now are are providing me with a robust, in-depth knowledge and insight that is helping me move my own uh, project forward. And and just sort of on the nostalgic tip, like I was I was talking about it a couple of weeks ago, but I'm just also mad grateful for the the like a public library contest that they had back in the day where like if you read a certain amount of books, you would get a personal pan pizza from Pizza oh, Hut. Yeah. And that just like that just got me super hype. I just remember every summer I'd be like, yo, I'm about to get all these pepperoni pizzas and read all these Harry Potter books. And like when you're 10 years old, what's better than that? It was just, it was the best. I appreciated my librarians both because they encouraged reading and they gave me the little pepperoni pizza coupon. And so shout out to y'all. Y'all are great. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Take the People's coming. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Pot Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to 
throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. Party of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And here's a convo with the poet, Cleo Wade. Cleo Wade, thanks so much for joining us today on Pot Save the People. Thank you so much for having me. You are an artiste. 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 I, I like yeah. artiste. Yeah, I like art. I'm here for artiste. Do you identify as like an artist in general or a poet or all of them? I realized this the most when I was selling my book um, because uh, as I was talking to the different publishers, I remember, you know what it's like to sell a book. You have to kind of go through your whole life in five minutes with a hundred people in one week. And I realized that in every single one of those conversations, I would say, I don't wake up in the morning and feel like an author. I wake up in the morning and feel like a tool maker. Hmm. And so for me, I think, you know, beyond poet or artist or whatever other title, I really do feel like a maker. I feel like my purpose is to create tools that help people through the journey of their life. And tell us about your book. You have a book called Heart Talk that is out. It is. I mean, first of all, this is the really the little book that could. I mean, even when I got the news that it was a national bestseller, I couldn't even believe it because it was really the book no one wanted. It, when I was selling it, everyone wanted me to put together a traditional book of poetry. They were saying that poetry was having such a renaissance right now, and you should just 
you know, put together a compilation in in six months and we'll we'll throw it out there. And I said no because I didn't want to create something I knew would fit in. I wanted to create what I wanted to see in the world. And so the book is a mix of my poems and my mantras and affirmations that I use as tools when I'm suffering with whether it's really deep insecurities or really deep anxieties or um, the mantras I use when I'm really afraid. And then the other part of the book is what I call kitchen table conversation. So it's kind of the advice I would give if we were sitting in my living room or on my couch or, you know, having an afternoon at my house. So the book is called Heart Talk because we couldn't really figure out what to call the words because what kept happening when we were editing the book is that they'd say, they'd call a paragraph that was the kitchen table advice a poem. They'd be like, well, can we move the poem that's on page 168 to page 182? And I'd say, what poem are they talking about? Or they'd say, like, one of the mantras in my handwriting or the, the notes in my handwriting, they'd say, oh, can you we move that poem here? And I was like, what poem? And so we decided to call them all heart talks because they really are just manifestations of what I feel in my heart. Can you, I'm going to put you on the spot. Can you give us a flavor of a heart talk of something from the book? Do you have the book with you? Yeah, I have the book. Okay. <laughs> uh, this one is called Tired. I was tired of worrying, so I gave myself my peace back. I was tired of feeling intimidated by what I should do, so I pulled up my sleeves and got to work on what I could do. I was tired of not knowing, so I found out about myself, my family, my ancestors, my government, and the struggles of others. I was tired of seeing evil everywhere. So I found the heavenly spots and showed my neighbors where they were. I was tired of looking at the world as one big mess, so I decided to start cleaning it up. And when people ask me if I am exhausted, I tell them no, because more than anything, what I got the most tired of was being tired. Boom. 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 Okay, this one is called Hiding and Seeking. When I let go of who I thought I had to be, I could finally and powerfully become who I really am. Oh, to find out I had been hiding and did not know that self-love had been looking for me all along. Do you have advice to poets, young poets right now? I think about this moment as one where it seems like the world in so many ways is is falling apart in people's lives and the artists have started to think about how to use their art as activism. So I'd love to know how you think about your art as activism and uh, what advice or messages do you share with young people who want to think about their art differently, not as, I don't know, I'll just leave it at differently. I think that it's very, very difficult to change laws and policy without changing hearts and minds first. And I think that the arts have historically always been an amazing way to change someone's mind and change their heart. So my advice to the people who are creating and expressing is to put the intention of changing the world behind everything you do. And I think you will watch the world around you start to change. Uh, sometimes I think where... Um, a lot of people lack is just making sure that that intention is there. That doesn't mean that everything you say has to be so obviously a 
um, you know, a, a poem about policy or everything has to be really literal to what you're looking to change or fight for. But the spirit of what you're looking to change and fight for can always run through your work, whether you're talking about a flower in bloom or an incarcerated woman. Do you think about yourself as an activist? For me, sometimes I think that uh, that word can be scary. It's been it was scary to me, you know, five or ten years ago, and so I'm always hesitant to use that word or call myself that. I usually use the word "active citizen" because that allows me to feel more free and define my activism the way I feel I need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always tell young people to allow their activism to look however they need it to look. So whether that means they use the word activist or don't, um, I do think that a lot of the times titles, whether it's activists or feminists or whatever, um, can create blocks for people rather than bridges at times. You know, you went to the Met Gala. You are an influencer yourself. Oh, the word with... influencer. Cringe. People call you an influencer. What do you call yourself? I don't know. Cleo. <laughs> Cleo. I like that. You are someone who influences people, whether you identify as an influencer or not. And you have a relationship with brands, right? Like that is a part of mm-hmm. how you enter into the cultural space. Or what is your take on those spaces as spaces that can actually do good in the world? I do a lot of work with Gucci, for example. And so when they donated $500,000 to the March for Our Lives, I called them and I said, I think it's so amazing to do that, but how amazing would it be for all of the employees to feel really a part of that too? Uh, So that when you give in that way, it doesn't just come from the top, it comes from the culture of the company. And Gucci is one of those amazing companies that really does care more about the culture of their company than pretty much any company I've ever walked through the doors of. Uh, And they were like, yes, let's do a sign making pizza party the afternoon before. And every single employee of that company in New York uh, got to come and I helped them make their signs. And we talked about gun violence and we talked about our children. And I think that it's important for brands to be authentic in spirit in that way where they want to build the the tribe that roots for the right thing, not just do the right thing on paper or on the front page of the paper. Because my work ends up being contextualized so much in the political sphere, mm-hmm. uh, I had so many people say to me, I'm so surprised this book isn't more about activating people to to y- engage politically or engage as an act- active citizen or whatever. And uh, And I told them that we keep, as people, skipping his step, which is that it's like Mitch Landry says in his speech, um, when he talked about the monuments and and the racism in our country, where he says that uh, we have these wounds that we never healed right the first time. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, yes, it's important to motivate people to push for the world we need to live in and that we deserve to live in and that our children deserve to inherit. And in that, we have to have a foundational healing that we've you know, each of our generations has skipped, you know, mental health has, was, has never been important. Self love in order to be good at even loving your neighbor has always been the step we've skipped, uh, or we've called self love selfish in the past. And so we don't, you know, if we, if, even if we ask our mothers about it, uh, they're like, I didn't have time to you know, have self care. What do you mean? Right. Uh, and so I think really bringing in that foundational, those foundational healing principles is so critical to being the type of 
people who um, change the world in the healthiest way possible. It's like that old saying, you know, healed people, heal people, hurt people, hurt people. Your poem, um, and may your first love last forever. P.S. You are your first love. Take care of yourself. Yeah. That makes me think of that. Yeah. But also, how, what would our world look like if we fought the good fight from a very healed and loved space within ourselves? I can't imagine what that world would be. Is there a moment on the tour so far that you'll never forget? Yes. So there was this young girl. I was actually in New York at the at the 92Y. And she had to be maybe in her early, very early 20s. She's, she's young. And she told me that... Um, her father and three uncles were all killed in 9-11. And a few, about a year ago, uh, they asked her to be a part of testifying against the five men who were being held in Guantanamo Bay responsible for 9-11. And she couldn't decide what to do. She couldn't decide if she wanted to join, uh, you know, to be a part of the case against them, uh, to put them to the death penalty. And she said, I had to make the decision. I couldn't figure out how to make the decision. And it was so interesting because when she walked up to me, she was so nervous. And sometimes I have people who are a little nervous because the thing about online is that everyone feels like they're your friend before they meet you. But she was so nervous. And I was like, what is wrong? And she's like, I've just been wanting to tell you this for so many months. Um, And she said that I had to make the decision. I couldn't figure out how to make the decision. I looked in your book. I I just opened up to a random page. And I saw the page that said, real leaders lead with love. And on that day, I knew I couldn't be a part of putting them to death. She said, I knew that the answer was not to create more death from death or more violence from violence. I knew I had to lead with love. And that's when the decision was clear to me. Hmm. When I left the room, I actually just started hysterically crying in the car right home. And I just remembered feeling so grateful that I was able to make things in the world that um, could really be there for people as a friend. I mean, when I wrote the intro of the book, it says... um, if you'd rather treat this book more of a like a friend and a companion rather than a book, that would make me really happy. Mm-hmm. And I said, rip the pages out if you want to, or, or draw on the book, or write your own notes, uh, because I really wanted it to be something that people could live with and, and have with them when they're going through any type of moment in their life, no matter how heavy or how light. And so in that moment, when all of the work you've put into something you see is doing really what you want it to do in the world. And I was so proud. What does it mean to you to be a a black woman in a space about healing and having tools that allow people to make the best decisions with their lives in a moment where it feels like the world's sort of falling apart? How does, how do you think about your own identity influencing your art? For me, I try to, create a as much space as I can for black women because we have since always lived without enough space that was intentionally ours and because my work also spans and and has a reach beyond black women as well I try to make sure that I am always able to be a teacher and help people learn and understand the inequity of the healing spaces and the difference and journeys and the things that people have to overcome in order to find self-love and self-care 
based on where they're from or what they look like or what their racial background is. Cleo, we consider your friend of the pod. Thanks for coming, and we will have you back soon. Thank you so much. I love you guys. I love the pod so much. Hey, Sam. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Clint. Oh, my God. What a dream. Except I wish they were all here. (laughs) Next time. Thanks so much for listening to Pod Save the People. Can't wait to see you next week. And make sure you rate us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.